welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Manager of Virtual Education for FIRST Healthcare Compliance. At FIRST Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, a principal with Rachel V. Rose, attorney at law, PLLC, in Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank, False Claims Act, whistleblower claims. In addition to being extensively published and a sought-after presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to practice before all state courts, as well as the United States Supreme Court, the District Court for the District of Columbia, and all four federal court districts in the state of Texas. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association, and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section, and the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, second edition, as well as co-author of the books, The ABCs of ACOs, and What Are International HIPAA Considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. In 2019, she was also named to the National Trial Lawyer Association's Top 100, as well as First Healthcare Compliance's 2019 Top Presenter. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. See www.rvrose.com for additional information. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Our team today is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Sharon Miller, Administrator at Gulf Coast Dermapathology Laboratory. Sharon says, patient care is paramount and by creating a culture of caring, compassion and respect, we have succeeded in all we do. We try to promote a family atmosphere in which in turn translates to ultimate patient care. Congratulations, Sharon. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation or immediately following in the afternoon. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There's no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Rachel, a very, very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here today and presenting for us at FIRST Healthcare Compliance. Hi, Catherine, and thank you for the warm introduction and congratulations to your Healthcare Compliance Ninja as well. Thank you, thank you. You 
are welcome. Well, today, as you indicated, we are going to be discussing DME POS and CMS compliance and requirements updates, as well as some recent case law and enforcement action involving DME companies by the DOJ. So I think we have a lot of ground to cover and I will delve into it now. So no presentation is complete without the requisite disclaimer. And today, basically, as always, this is not meant to constitute legal advice. Please consult an attorney for advice on a specific situation. The information presented is current as of the date of the original recording of the presentation. Given the dynamic nature of the topic, participants are encouraged to check the relevant government websites for the most recent information. So today I'm going to be leading with what constitutes a durable medical equipment, prosthetic, orthotics, or, and or supply. DME POS. It's also referred to as DME for short, so throughout the presentation, I'll typically refer to it as DME. From there, I'll delve into regulatory requirements, updates, and considerations, and then segue into one of my favorite topics, which is the False Claims Act, and recent cases involving DME. From there, I'll delve into some compliance suggestions and answer any questions that the audience may have. So basically, what is DME and what should participants or in entities, individuals considering entering into the DME space consider in relation to Medicare, other regulatory updates and additional considerations? Well, first and foremost, what is DME? It's durable medical equipment and the basic definition of DME is reusable medical equipment like walkers, wheelchairs, or hospital beds. There is also a long laundry list, which I will provide to you on another slide. And we'll also delve into the next question. What's a standard written order? Next, if I have Medicare, can I get a DME? And the answer is absolutely. Anyone who has Medicare Part B can get DME as long as the equipment is medically necessary. But before I go on further, I wanna make sure that everyone's on the same page. Medicare basically has four parts. There's Medicare Part A and Part B, which are considered traditional Medicare. Then there's Medicare Part C and Part D. Medicare Part D applies to pharmaceuticals, so we'll take that off the table. Medicare Part C is also known as Medicare Advantage, and that is a, another route that individuals can elect over Medicare Part A and Part B, which I'll define momentarily. Basically, it's similar coverage to what a Medicare beneficiary would obtain through traditional Medicare, but it is offered by a third party uh, medical insurer. And the way that the rates are determined vary pretty significantly from traditional Medicare. That's nothing that a Medicare beneficiary needs to be aware of, but it is something that if you're in this space, you absolutely need to consider because there are regulations that apply to Part C, which are divergent from Parts A and Parts B. So, Medicare Part A is your inpatient Medicare coverage, and that's relevant as we'll see on the next slide. But Medicare Part B is most commonly used by Medicare beneficiaries for doctor's visits or outpatient type of services or DME, so those would be goods. 
And so here, anyone who has Medicare Part B can get DME as long as the equipment is medically necessary. And for those of you who are new to the healthcare industry, medical necessity is kind of this mercurial term in that it indicates that there needs to be adequate substantiation in a medical record that a patient needs a particular equipment or procedure or service or diagnostic test. However, it doesn't specifically outline exactly what needs to be in there. But the more specific that you can be, the better off it will be in terms of an audit or if a claim is denied, if you can then submit that and have it come back into play, I think it'll be relevant. Next, Medicare Part B covers DME when a doctor or healthcare provider, like a nurse practitioner, physician assistant, or clinical nurse specialist, prescribes it for a beneficiary's use in one's home. A hospital or nursing home that's providing you with Medicare covered care can't qualify as your home because this would be an institution. However, a long-term care facility may qualify. And I've provided the link to the Medicare site because it's very important that one appreciate the difference between a skilled nursing facility a nursing home and a long-term care facility. They're all very distinguishable under the law. And as you can see, it can in fact, not only affect your coverage, but also what part of Medicare it may fall under. So because Medicare Part B is commonly used, let's begin with that. So after you meet the Part B deductible, and for those of you who, again, are unfamiliar with how the U.S. healthcare system works, whether it is Medicare or a private insurance company, typically when you sign up in your explanation of benefits, there are two prongs that one you should really hone in on. The first is, what is your deductible that you have to meet each year? That's important because before benefits really kick in, you have to meet a certain amount, and that varies from plan to plan, so it's important that you know what that is. So let's just say that your annual deductible is $500 just for the sake of ease. After you meet that, then you would be required to pay 20% of the Medicare approved amount if the supplier accepts this assignment. And if they are contracted as a provider or a DME supplier under Medicare, then they have to accept what Medicare pays. However, Medicare pays for different kinds of DME in different ways. So depending on the type of equipment, you may need to rent the equipment. There could be other nuances, but you absolutely want to go to your MAC, the Medicare Audit Contractor website, and there are different ones for different regions in order to ascertain that. Additionally, what's important to note is the deductible is separate from a copay. And here at the first prong where it says you pay 20% after you meet the deductible, that is known as a copay. So whether you are working for a durable medical supplier or a skilled nursing facility or a hospital and you're attending this webinar or you're an attorney and you're advising different types of entities, including DMEs, it's absolutely imperative to appreciate that distinction between the deductible and the copay. We'll get into some exceptions to when a Medicare beneficiary may be exempt from paying the copay, but it's very specific and it is on a case by case basis. So, as it's indicated, you may need to rent the equipment, you may need to buy the equipment, or you may be able to choose whether to rent or buy the equipment. Sometimes rental is advantageous because of A, the cost of the equipment, or B, a Medicare beneficiary may need it for an acute period of time, so it makes more sense just to rent it. 
some examples would be postoperatively. That would be a great example of when a DME might be available to be rented. Medicare will only cover the DME if doctors and the DME suppliers are enrolled in Medicare. And doctors and suppliers have to meet strict standards to enroll and stay enrolled in Medicare. And as part of my practice, I do represent DME suppliers, and I have represented people who have gotten what I refer to as love letters from CMS regarding their Medicare enrollment status. Now, fortunately for my clients who are above board individuals, we were able to refute the CMS assertion and point out that there was an error that was made, but other DME suppliers who are acting more nefariously, and some of those examples will be provided later on in this presentation, they have a lot more to worry about. So if either the doctor or the supplier is not enrolled, then Medicare will not pay the claims that they submit. Well, one item that everyone should consider, and I kind of punted on the previous slide, is to make sure that doctors and DME are not only enrolled, but the standard work orders are in place. And that's something that is a major issue, as we will see in a moment, and also something that DME companies need to make sure that they are doing. Uh, I put standard work order, standard written order is another designation for that. I've heard it both ways, but standard written order is the term that you will see on those MAC websites as well as in the various regulations. What's important to note is that the standard written orders or SOWs have been on CMS's radar and effective dates of service on or after January 1, 2020, so we're about two years into this, must be communicated to a supplier before billing any item of DME POS. So what does that mean? It basically means that someone other than the treating practitioner may complete the SOW of the item unless statute, CMS manual instructions, or state manual instructions, the contractor's local coverage determination or policy articles specify otherwise. However, the treating practitioner must review the content and sign the document. So again, this is absolutely critical to note. Unlike medical necessity, there are certain items of DME POS where a certain order is required prior to the delivery, which is WOPD, of the items to the beneficiary. And an SWO, again, unlike that nebulous or more ambiguous definition of medical necessity, actually is very specific. First, you need the beneficiary's name or Medicare beneficiary identifier. Second, you need the date of the order. Third, a general description of the item. For example, the description can either be a general description like a wheelchair or a hospital bed or a HICPIC code, which is HCPCS code and the code narrative or a brand name slash model number. Now for equipment, in addition to the description of the base item, the SWO may include all concurrently ordered options, accessories, or additional features that are separately billed or require an upgraded code. And you need to list those separately. Now for suppliers, in addition to the description of the base item, 
the DME POS order and prescription may include all concurrently ordered supplies that are separately billed, and those need to be parsed out separately on individual line items. Quantity to be dispensed, so for example, if you're using catheters or diabetic testing uh, strips, those are something that would be a multiple quantity and typically something that is ongoing. The treating practitioner's name or NPI, typically on all forms, it has a treating practitioner's name and the MPI. The treating practitioner's signature and then upon request by a contractor, DME POS suppliers must provide documentation of the completed SWO. Now, the MAX and Medicare can then ask for the substantiation for the need of either a certain quantity, a certain type of DME, or even the issuance of the DME at all. So again, this is where we see the interplay between needing to have that medical necessity documented in the chart. And it's also imperative that the DME suppliers have the SWO on file. And that's something that needs to be updated annually. Secondly, they need to make sure that the <laughs> patients that they're serving are still alive. Thirdly, they need to make sure that under HIPAA, they are keeping all of the requisite documentation in accordance with HIPAA, which is obviously the federal law for six years, but then states have additional requirements, which could require that the designated health record or what we're dealing with with DME be kept for at least seven years. And then if you have minors or legal holds or anything else, then you're into a longer period of time. Additionally, in limited circumstances in which the treating practitioner is also the supplier, and that is a delicate dance. And so hopefully if you've set something up in that context, you've consulted a knowledgeable healthcare lawyer, not just a general lawyer, because you have to consider Stark in the anti-kickback statute if you're doing that. Now, written orders prior to delivery, that is the WOPD that I mentioned just a few moments before. A WOPD is com a completed S. WO, and again, SWO is a standard written order per the regs that is communicated to the DME POS supplier before the delivery of the items. Now, pursuant to the final rule, which is found at 84 Federal Register, Volume 217, CMS may select DME POS items appearing on the master list of DME POS items potentially subject to a face-to-face -face encounter and written order to delivery requirements and include them on the required list. So what is this required list? Well, first it contains statutorily required DME POS items such as power mobility devices, a wheelchair or a rascal. I have to mention the rascal because I'm a huge Seinfeld fan. And secondly, additional DME POS items selected by CMS appearing on the required list. Now, a couple of reminders. Signatures must comply with the CMS signature requirements, and that is outlined in the CMS Internet Only Manual 100-8, the Program Integrity Manual, Chapter 3, Section 3.3.2.4, Signature and Date Stamps are absolutely not allowed, so that is critical. A prescription is not considered as part of the medical record. Medical information intended to demonstrate compliance with coverage criteria 
may be included on the prescription, but must be corroborated by the information contained in the medical record. Again, this goes back to our medical necessity, as well as the communication between the provider and the DME supplier. When in doubt, contact your MAC, your Medicare audit contractor. And again, there are different jurisdictions which uh, include certain states and an assigned Medicare contractor covers all of that particular jurisdiction. They're typically labeled by the letters A, B, C, and D. And under each of those, you have the various states included. So hopefully that gives the background of what um, is going on there. I think one critical item to note is that it's very important to ask suppliers if they participate in Medicare before you get a DME. If suppliers are participating in Medicare, they must accept assignment, which means they can only charge you the coinsurance and Part B deductible for the Medicare approved amount. They cannot balance Bill. Now, typically what happens if suppliers aren't participating and don't accept assignment is you have to have notice of that. And secondly, there's no limit on the amount that they can charge you. Additionally, there may be a particular DME that is not covered by Medicare, even if the DME supplier is participating in Medicare. And if that is the case, you need to get a beneficiary notice. That is absolutely critical. Now, Medicare Part A and Part C, as I mentioned, are different because Medicare Part A applies if, for example, you are in a skilled nursing facility as part of a covered stay or if you're in the hospital. If that's the case, the facility is responsible, responsible for providing DME you need while you're in the facility for up to 100 days. And that typically comes under a, a bundled type payment. If it's being parsed out and legally it cannot be parsed out, that would be the submission of a false and fraudulent claim. Now, Medicare Advantage plans Part C must cover the same medically necessary items and services as original Medicare. But again, the specific costs will depend upon which Medicare Advantage plan you have. So be sure if you are a Medicare beneficiary or if you advise clients or family members to look at the explanation of benefits and compare it to traditional Medicare as well. So if, for example, you're a Medicare Advantage plan and you need DME, or if you are a Medicare beneficiary who utilizes Part C, you want to call your plan's primary care provider and find out if your plan will provide the DME. You can also call the Medicare plan directly. But getting something in writing can, in fact, be helpful if the Medicare Advantage plan then says, oh, we're not going to cover that item or service. But again, that's where it's imperative that the provider have the requisite medical necessity met. And typically, the best way to do that is by meeting the who, what, when, where, why, and how for a given situation and using evidence-based medicine to substantiate why this individual needs this particular DME. So if you're getting home care or using medical equipment and you choose to join a new Medicare Advantage plan, you should call your new primary care provider or again, call your insurer to make sure that they will continue to cover any DME that you're currently using. So DME criteria part one. First, as Medicare sets out, it needs to have these criteria. First, durable. Can withstand repeated use. Well, I'm going to sidestep that because there are certain 
DME items, which are in fact disposable. A great example of that is a diabetic testing strip. For those of you who check your blood sugar or know, know someone who does, you can't use that twice. You can use the actual machine that you use to read the prick that you take, but those lancets as well as the diabetic testing strips or blood sugar testing strips cannot be repeatedly used. It's used for a medical reason, not usually useful to someone who isn't sick or injured, used in your home if you're under part B, and then generally has an expected lifetime of at least three years. Again, there are exceptions and the diabetic lancets, uh, if you are using needles for, to administer something under medical necessity, that could be something that is a disposable catheters or disposable certain types of wound care or disposable. And you're obviously not going to have a life expectancy of three years for that device. So some key Regulatory updates, durable medical equipment, DME, POS, you need to follow the requirements that I just went through for those standard written orders. First, you need to keep an SWO um, in the treating practitioner's file. Second, get the SWO before submitting a claim for all DME POS items. So if you are the DME supplier, you absolutely need to make sure that you have the SWO or that you're meeting another local coverage determination before you either process the claim or ship that item or items. And then submit completed SWOs for all DME POS services build if there's an audit. So you absolutely have to have those on file. Elements to include in a claim and related documentation. Now, CMS actually just updated its uh, MLN articles. So this is very uh, timely and important. And this is, again, something that you'll find on the CMS website under Medicare coverage database, the MCD. And there's an article on local coverage specifically related to standard documentation requirements for all claims submitted to DME Medicare audit contractors. So the original effective date was January 1st of 2017, and it was revised on April the 6th of 2020. There is no revision ending date and there is no revision retirement date. So basically it delves into AMA, CPT, ADA, CDT, which are the dental codes and then AHA, NUBC codes. Now, basically they published this article because first many errors reported in Medicare audits are due to claims submitted with incomplete or missing requisite documentation. Consequently, the durable medical equipment, Medicare administrative contractors or Medicare audit contractors, the MACs, have created guidance to assist DME suppliers in understanding the information necessary to justify a payment. Now, the documentation requirements are compiled from statutes, codes of federal regulations, CMS national coverage determinations, which are known as NCDs, CMS rulings and sub-regulatory guidance, and DME MAC publications, as well as those local coverage determinations or LCDs. And basically all claims for items billed to Medicare require a written order or prescription from the treating practitioner as a condition for payment. This written order or prescription, as we know, is referred to as a standard written order. 
All claims typically refers to claims submitted for payment of purchases or rentals by Part B. And again, that's because if you're in a healthcare facility, such as a skilled nursing facility or a hospital, that falls under Part A, and that's something that is submitted by that facility. Again, Part C is administered by third-party insurance plans, and there are different parameters associated with that. But what's important to reiterate is that the new order requirements specifically state that not only is a new order or prescription required for all claims for purchases or initial rentals, if there is a change in the DME POS order, such as the quantity, on a regular basis, what does that mean? So even if there is no change in the order or prescription, only if it is so specified in the document section of a particular medical policy. Otherwise, it's required just as a prescription for a drug that you have an annual uh, statement of work or prescription in place, or SWO, sorry, standard written order in place. And that's because that people want to make sure that standing orders are not in place and that both providers and DME entities, suppliers, are not gaming the system. And we'll see examples of how that was costly through the False Claims Act and other fraud enforcement. When an item is replaced or when there is a change in a supplier. An SWO must be communicated to the supplier prior to the claim submission, and for certain DME items, a written order is required prior to delivery of the items to the beneficiary. And clearly, I am emphasizing this because it is a very significant area for potential fraud, potential abuse, and also it could be costly to both the practitioner and to the supplier. Next, you want to look into the beneficiary name or identifier, and I've already mentioned this, but these are worth uh, articulating again, because if you don't have something, it can be costly in terms of an audit, a False Claims Act case or another government enforcement action. The quantity you'll dispense, order date, practitioner name, or MPI, again, if you think about your own types of CMS 1500 claim forms, it requires both the MPI number of the facility or the provider and then the treating physician or provider's name uh, and MPI number as well. Those are two distinct MPIs. Treating physician uh, signature and then the additional items which are available as well as the education and outreach materials from CMS I've included here. Now, as we know in healthcare, oftentimes we have a lot of codes and uh, the HIC PIC codes, which became effective April 1st of 2022, are particularly notable because this is pretty much in real time. Here we have A4238, again applicable to the DME uh, max, and then we have E2102, K1028, K1029, K1030, K1031, K1032, K1033, and V2525. Importantly, as part of the update, they added, CMS added, no fee schedules to the DME POS fee schedule file for new and revised HICPIC codes effective April 1, 2022, for specific codes, including A4238. E2102, 
K1028 through K1033 and V2525. So pretty much everything on the bulleted list is included in this final bullet. Why do <laughs> exclusions from Medicare matter? Well, first and foremost, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Medicare and the role HHS OIG plays in excluding individuals, it is absolutely something that is important. One item here that we need to be aware of just to give a little bit of background to this is that exclusions have actually been around since 1977 and they are imposed by HHS Office of the Inspector General. However, they may arise because of a False Claims Act case or other matter that was initiated by or through the Department of Justice. Now, it's important to note that there are two types of exclusion which are expressly stated in the Social Security Act. First, you have an exclusion under Section 1128, and that includes exclusion from all federal healthcare programs. By way of contrast, exclusions under Section 1156 of the Act do not reach other federal programs other than Medicare and Medicaid. So it's important to note that the process begins when a person receives a notice of intent to exclude. But from there, there's a process. So the recipient of the NOI is given the opportunity to respond. Once all of the information is considered, HHS OIG renders its decision. The findings substantiate exclusion. The person is notified. From there, the individual or the entity itself may appeal to an HHS administrative law judge and further appeal to the DHHS Departmental Appeals Board. Subsequently, after the DAB renders its decision, judicial review in a U.S. district court is also available and reinstatement of an individual or entity is not automatic. So once a person is excluded for a certain period of time, in fact, that person must apply for reinstatement and that process may begin 90 days before the period of exclusion ends. So here there is a case that I wanted to note and that is the Wyndham Eye Care practice and its owners pay 192K for employing an excluded individual. Well, this is very important because HHS OIG has an exclusion list that every entity who is hiring a person or thinking of doing business with another entity should absolutely check. And First Healthcare Compliance makes that part of its available platform for its own clients. And so this is something that is an absolute benefit. And as you can see here from the exclusion criteria, there can be very significant consequences. So with Wyndham in particular, the federal and state governments entered into a civil settlement agreement to resolve allegations that they improperly employed an individual who was excluded from all federal healthcare programs. So when we see all federal healthcare programs, we should automatically go to that 1128 section of the Social Security Act. More specifically, the Wyndham I Group employed an individual as its practice administrator from February 2010 through May of 2021. And previously, this individual was convicted of healthcare fraud in the District of New Jersey and was excluded from all federal healthcare programs. What's important to note is that the DOJ in its press release indicated 
that when HHS OIG excludes an individual or entity from federal healthcare programs, no program payments may be made for items or services furnished by that excluded individual or entity. So you may be thinking, well, if this person was a practice administrator, he wasn't a physician or a nurse practitioner or another medical professional, and it wasn't a situation where, for example, a DME supplier was excluded and a practice was doing business. So how does this work? The relevance to WEG was that a portion of the reimbursements received from the federal healthcare programs were used to pay this excluded individual salary and benefits. So again, this is something worth noting and absolutely worth going through either first healthcare compliance and their program that they have and or at a minimum looking at the list of excluded individuals entities on the HHS website. But it's also worth noting that in 2013, HHS issued an updated special advisory bulletin emphasizing that in order to avoid potential liability, healthcare providers and organizations providing services or goods directly or indirectly should check the list of excluded individuals entities on the HHS website. So that's kind of a compliance preview, but this is something that the government does take seriously and it could have more significant ramifications. Also, if an individual or a provider has entered into what is known as a corporate integrity agreement, it's notable that if they fail to adhere to those terms that they could end up on the not good list here and end up excluded as a result. So DME and the False Claims Act, as I indicated, this is one of my favorite subjects to discuss. So basically in 2022, as it usually does, the DOJ announced its civil frauds enforcement priorities. It usually begins with a recap of what transpired for the previous fiscal year. And for the year ending September 30th of 2021, there was a settlement and judgments from civil cases involving fraud and false claims that the DOJ collected in excess of 5.6 billion. Not surprisingly, healthcare fraud again once led the list of the department's False Claims Act settlements and judgments for that past year. And the department's healthcare fraud enforcement efforts restore funds to federal programs such as Medicare, Medicaid, and TRICARE, the healthcare program for veteran and service members and their families. But just as important, the department's vigorous pursuit of the healthcare fraud prevents billions more in losses by others by deterring people who may try to cheat the system for their own gain. So a little bit of history on the False Claims Act. It stems back to 1863 and it's known as the Lincoln Law. There are two major statutory amendments, one in 1943, the other in 1986. The Fraud Enforcement and Recovery Act of 2009, FIRA, was actually a bipartisan law that was initially uh, co-sponsored by Republican Senator Grassley, as well as Democrat, now uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. And FIRA basically did a few things for the FCA. First, it expanded exposure to FCA investigations and claims. Second, it provided the DOJ with expanded tools and 
conduct civil investigations into possible healthcare fraud before an action is commenced, including civil investigative demands. Next, under FERA, parties are now liable under the FCA when they knowingly receive overpayments or conspire to conceal evidence of overpayments. The Affordable Care Act, again, gave some additional boost, so to speak, to the FCA, including the public disclosure bar. And here, the public disclosure bar means that an item has already been disclosed to the public at large, not to another government agency. So it could be knowledge of a case or a certain type of conduct. But what's important to note is that original source is still something that can be argued and is still being required as necessary. The biggest way to look at the interplay between the public disclosure bar and original source is that an iceberg can be utilized as a simile, so to speak. So like an iceberg whereby the top is visible, so is the information that is disclosed to the public. What the original source has, like an iceberg, is what lies below the surface of the water, which the public is not aware of. And then it contributes to the government's investigation. So pursuant to section 6402 of ACA, overpayments that are not reported and returned within 60 days after the date identified or the date that a corresponding cost report is due, are now considered an obligation under the False Claims Act and are the basis for civil monetary penalties. So what does a False Claims Act or case look like, or more specifically, what does a false claim look like? Well, first, a false claim may take many forms, including the most common being a claim for goods or services not provided or provided in relation to the violation of contract terms, specifications, statutes, or regulation. And for anyone who has ever advised a client or submitted a claim or works for an entity who submits a claim, basically there are attestations on every form that gets submitted to a government agency such as CMS or TRICARE that you are adhering to the relevant laws and regulations, including but not limited to Stark and the anti-kickback provision. You're also attesting that you realize that the statements are truthful on the claim form that is being submitted, that medical necessity is being met, and that if there is a violation, that civil and or criminal penalties may be pursued. So it's pretty express on both the CMS forms uh, 855, which is how a provider enrolls in Medicare, as well as the CMS forms 1500 and then for hospitals, UBO4. But as things have become electronic, typically that's done through the PICOS system. So first and foremost, Escobar is a case that came about and the Supreme Court rendered an opinion on June 25th of 2016 to resolve a split in the circuits as to whether or not the implied certification theory was viable. So here we have factually false worthless services theory, legally false express, legally false by implied certification, and that reverse false claim, which in fact came about as part of FERA. And the legally false by implied certification was the result of Escobar. Materiality was something that was honed in on by the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court upheld that legally false by implied certification was a viable option, meaning that it's not expressly stated, but it's something that is material to the government's willingness to pay for a claim. If someone is bringing a False Claims Act case, first and foremost, the plaintiff must prove the defendant presented or caused to be presented to an agent of the United States a claim for payment. Two, the claim was materially false or fraudulent. 
and three, the defendant knew the claim was false or fraudulent. Next, clearing FRCP 9B and 12B6. The seal and extensions under the statute itself, there is a 60-day seal provision, but oftentimes the government will request subsequent seal extensions. During that time, no one knows or should know about the case except for the government, the relator, also known as the whistleblower, and the counsel that brought the case. A False Claims Act case has to be brought by a lawyer, so unless the lawyer is bringing the case, a pro se individual who is not a licensed attorney cannot bring a False Claims Act case. Intervention versus non-intervention versus dismissal. That's also critical. Unlawful kickbacks are still a DOJ priority, and I want to bring this particular case to the attention of the audience because not only did it involve kickbacks in the healthcare industry and as the DOJ has articulated, those are pernicious because of their potential to subvert medical decision making and to increase healthcare costs. In addition to pursuing improper payments, by drug manufacturers, the department resolved other schemes involving the willful solicitation of payment of illegal remuneration to individuals to induce the purchase or good of a service paid for by a federal healthcare program. One example is in fact significant and it involves a DME supplier, Areva Medical, and its parent, Allier Inc., agreed to pay over $160 million to settle allegations that Areva paid kickbacks to Medicare beneficiaries by doing a couple of things. First, providing them free and no-cost diabetic testing glucometers, and by routinely waiving or not making reasonable efforts to collect their co-payments for glucometers and diabetic testing supplies. In another example, the department resolved its claims against pain management clinics in urine drug testing labs owned and operated by Daniel McCullum for unlawful kickbacks to providers to induce the use of referrals for urine drug tests. And that totaled more than $140 million and a $9 million civil consent. I need to make another reference to the Areva case because not only did it include the shipping, right, of free or no cost uh, glucometers by routinely waiving or not making reasonable efforts to collect the co-payments. Remember at the outset, I described the distinction between the deductible and the co-payments. It is okay on a case-by-case -case basis as long as the financial need is substantiated to waive a copay for an individual Medicare beneficiary. But again, make sure if you're a DME supplier or a provider that you have that substantiated. Routinely waiving, meaning a carte blanche waiver is not acceptable and it's not permissible to act in reckless disregard or to turn a blind eye and knowingly and willfully not make a reasonable effort to collect a co-payment. Again, these are not small settlement agreements. When you start getting into the $140, $160 million range, that's very significant. Another example are EHR records. Those are becoming more and more of an emphasis. And Athena Health paid $18.25 million to resolve allegations that it invited customers and prospective customers to lavish all expense paid sporting, entertainment exception, uh, et cetera, types of events to generate sales. Again, you have other generic pharmaceutical manufacturers paying over 400 million to resolve allegations that they paid and received compensation prohibited by the anti-kickback statute. 
through arrangement arrangements on price supply and allocation again that's more of a antitrust violation and the DOJ as well as members of Congress and the Federal Trade Commission have been honing that on that as well again just so you have this I wanted to have a separate slide but I've already addressed the nuances of this particular case and again this came out of the middle district of Tennessee and it's important because a it's recent and B it is significant in terms of the amount the Center for Program Integrity and the Center for Medicare Services also took criminal action against 130 DME companies that submitted over $1.7 billion in claims for payment. This, as you may be aware, the government will use its heat task force and do a roundup. Here, they charge 24 defendants, including CEOs, COOs, and others associated with five telemedicine companies, the owners of dozens of DME companies, and three licensed medical professionals. So this was across the 17 federal districts, and they executed over 80 search warrants. So again, this is an area of interest that is going to remain on the DOJ's radar, both on the civil side and on the criminal side, and they do coordinate with the FBI and HHS OIG as well. So as I round out this presentation, some suggestions for mitigating risk include cultivating a culture of compliance, not just in form and giving it lip service, but also in substance, obtaining confirmation that an entity and individuals that it employs are not on the exclusion list, having an external audit done at least annually by a qualified third party to ensure that the requisite documents are obtained, included in the patient's medical record, updated and coded correctly, and then waivers of co-pays continue to be an area of interest. So make sure to have appropriate documentation in place that demonstrates a financial need and make sure that the waiver is on a case-by-case -case basis. So with that, Catherine, I wanted to thank the audience for attending today and thank First Healthcare Compliance for having me and I'll take any questions that anyone has. Okay, thank you, Rachel, for this comprehensive presentation. And we haven't had a presentation like this from this perspective. So I very much appreciate you sharing your expert advice with us. So thank you for being on today. And we do have a few questions. So I'm just gonna take a few, a few questions and then uh, we'll take the rest of the questions offline and I'll send you those after the presentation. First one is, can DME POS suppliers be excluded from Medicare? Is that a possibility? Absolutely. And they, because they are a participating provider, they are just as susceptible as any other individual or entity from being excluded by Medicare or alternatively having to enter into a corporate integrity agreement. Okay, and let me see, what type of items should auditors consider? So a type of item that an auditor should consider um, one item is making sure that that SWO, the standard written order, is in place. Secondly, making sure that it's updated annually. Third, making sure that the medical record documents the medical necessity from the provider side. And then from the supplier side, making sure that that SWO is on file that they have all of the appropriate signatures, that they're not stamped, and that they're meeting both the national coverage determinations and local coverage determinations, in addition to the regulatory and Medicare manual 
requirements. Finally, on the DME side, the number of items and the waiver of co-pays should also be looked into. Okay, thank you so much, Rachel. Do you have any other words of advice that you'd like to leave with us today concerning our presentation today about medical equipment, durable medical equipment? The only items that I would reemphasize are when an entity implements a compliance program and tries to cultivate a culture of compliance, make sure that it is robust, that it's reviewed at least annually, and that training is included with that. Because when the government comes in, and if you're on the receiving end as a defendant in a False Claims Act case or a love letter from HHS OIG, you can potentially have a mitigating factor by having a valid and robust compliance program. But again, it has to be genuine and they do look at the substance over the form of those types of programs. Thank you for that advice. And I wanted to thank you again for being on our webinar with First Healthcare Compliance. So thank you so much. We always enjoy your presentation, so thank you. Thank you, and thank you to the audience as well. It's always my pleasure. Thank you. And I wanted to let our audience know two things, uh, let you all know that there will be a podcast on this same subject where we're going to, where Rachel and I will expand on a discussion concerning this topic, and that'll be coming out at a later date. And also, I wanted to invite you all to our virtual healthcare compliance Sympo symposium 2022. That is going to be on April 28th. And when you get your letter after the presentation, you'll see a registration link for that, but it's a day of, of learning. And there's gonna be not only CEUs available, but it also, also CLEs. And uh, Rachel's gonna be one of the presenters for that. And it's just gonna be a really wonderful, wonderful day of learning. Please join us for that. So um, I wanted to also remind you to please use the contact information on the screen for any questions that you have further for Rachel, or um, you can send us questions and we'll forward them on. And please remember your Paycom and P PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for any future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.